I've known Rudy for about 50 years, and um, we were always going to be writers together. And we both got it done. I wrote four books. He's written about 40. <laughs> He's had uh, a couple of big hits, a lot of movie offers, a couple of um, options, and some really close calls with Hollywood. And a lot of his books are very filmable. But to me, uh, the thing that distinguishes Rudy is the absolute joy he takes in doing what he's doing. His, his books are just... I don't know how to say it. They just, they, they, they have the energy of his enjoyment of the act of writing in them. Um, he was always a better storyteller than I was. He just got it from wherever it came from and just lived to get it out there. And he's been doing it for, when, when, when did you put your first book out? When I was about 30, about 36 years ago. 30, he's been doing it for 36 years. And um, it's still fun. His latest his latest book that he's going to talk to you about tonight, I, I, I just read over the weekend, and it's, uh, it's still fun. So without further ado. Well, it's nice to be here. I'm glad you could come over to my house. <laughs> I'm, I'm living here for a week, thanks to Henry Perini and uh, Greg also found out about this opportunity, so... It's fun to be in Gloucester. It's uh, really beautiful, the, the topography and the, the buildings, the colors, the water. And uh, so today I'm going to talk about beatnik science fiction. And uh, I'm going to break the talk into four pieces. And I won't talk too long. I want to leave some time for questions. Uh, so the first section I'm going to talk about will be called Transrealism. Then I'll talk about William Burroughs as a science fiction writer. Then I'll note some comparisons between Transrealism and beat writing. And then I'll tell you a little bit about my new beatnik science fiction novel, uh, Turing and Burroughs. Um, I guess it was as early as when I was about 14, I found out about the Beatnik writers. My brother had a subscription to Evergreen Review, and I used to look through it. Uh, mainly at that age, I was looking for erotic things. And then I came across an excerpt from William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, and I was just... It was so different from anything I'd seen as a 14-year-old in Louisville, Kentucky in 1960. But Right away, I could see that it was it was funny, but also sort of mind-altering. And then I came to like Jack Kerouac's writing very much. And what I noticed about these two writers, and then later Allen Ginsberg, was that it was very much a, a sort of a confessional way of writing. They were writing about their innermost feelings and uh, their lives and in a fairly uncensored way. And, uh, but it was also, they were novels. They seemed more like novels than like memoirs, particularly Burroughs, where he would alter things so much. 
And then I, so I had this early idea that I would like to be a writer that writes about you know, my own life in some kind of fantastic way. And uh, Greg and I, we roomed together at Swarthmore College, senior year, and we, we had a lot in common because we, we both wanted to be writers and uh, we both admired William Burroughs and Robert Sheckley were two of the writers that we liked. Sheckley, not everybody may know of him, he's a science fiction writer. And uh, I feel like we were piglets in the same litter, you know, <laughs> and uh, kind of nursing at the same, the same sow, the beatnik sow. <laughs> and, uh, so, actually the year after we got out of college, Back in those days, we wrote letters a lot to each other. You'd get a piece of paper and a mechanical typewriter, and you'd, you'd type a letter and mail it, and then, you know, a week, week, ten days later, you'd get a, a letter back. And that, in a way, for me, that was my apprenticeship, was writing letters to my friends, because I learned the, the trick of writing like I talk, and writing in a natural way. Uh, sometimes when people first try to write, they they immediately put on the dog and start using phrases that they wouldn't ordinarily use. And uh, so that was a, a good practice for learning to be a writer. And actually at one point, at that point I was a graduate sc school, I was studying mathematics, and Greg was in the Navy. Uh, I think he had joined the Navy because he didn't want to get drafted and end up going to Vietnam. That was one of the considerations. And uh, so we actually started trying to write a novel together. We mailed it back and forth to each other. And we sort of had different ideas of what the novel was about. I think we were going to, I thought we should call it The Snake People. And it was, it was based on this idea we had, at one point we were smoking hashish together and we had this feeling as if invisible alien snakes were darting through the air and flying through our heads. And uh, so, to, with my bed of mind, that was clearly a theme for a novel. And, uh, and then Greg's parts that he was contributing were mostly about his experiences as being in the Navy at that point, you know, which was sufficiently surreal as well. And then, though we didn't, we didn't manage to finish the novel, uh, we thought we had more important things to do though probably that was as important as anything else. And there was a remark Greg made to me early uh, around this time or maybe a little bit later. He said, uh, the really cool thing to do would be to write about your own life, but write it as a science fiction novel. And that sort of stuck in my mind. And I thought, well, I really like science fiction. I, I, I was not an English major. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like, uh, I didn't like sort of straight fiction. I wanted to write beatnik literature, but I wanted it to be something more, something a little different. And then I had this idea that I could write novels about disaffected, you know, restless people similar to me and my friends, but I would have it be a science fiction novel as well. And at that time, and even now, it's very often the case in science fiction novels it's a lot of it where the characters are not particularly realistic, or not like actual people. There's uh, 
they'll be sort of just robotic and doing what the author wants them to do. And I wanted to have this idea of having quirky, rounded people like my friends that wouldn't uh, just act out what I wanted them to do. So I started writing novels in that style and eventually I came to call that style transrealism. And uh, I think, I guess the first one like that was a novel called White Light. And it was about a, a person who was a professor at an upstate New York college, which is what I was at that time. But he leaves his body and travels to infinity and uh, goes to the afterworld and climbs a mountain transfinitely high. And the way I like to do the transrealism was I like to have the science fictional elements that I use in some way match some aspect of something that actually mattered to me personally. And there were two reasons I was interested in infinity. Uh, one was I liked the mystical notion you know, of getting a direct view of God, somehow getting all the way out there to the late 60s, early 70s. And then, and white light, of course, that's sort of a kind of a drug expression. And then there's also, the, my PhD I'd studied was actually the, the mathematics of higher levels of infinity. So I had this sort of technical knowledge about the higher levels of infinity. And I thought, I'm going to take this and use this as an objective correlative for my mystical quest for the one. And then I'll put this onto a character who's like a, an assistant professor at a small college and he's, he's about to get fired. And, and then I'll have a novel. And so that, that actually worked out pretty well. So I wrote a number of novels kind of in that vein where you, I would take what was going on in my life at a certain time. And the, the tools of science fiction, you, it's sort of the difference between science fiction and fairy tales. It's not all that big. It's like we put on this window dressing of science, but there's really just these sort of archetypes that people like to think about. I mean, telepathy. I mean, you can make up a, an explanation using quantum mechanics, or you can just have, you know, the wizard reading minds. But, you know, then I would think, like, why do we care about telepathy? And it would seem to me it was sort of a, a symbol for the idea of people understanding what you're talking about. Like somehow getting into communication with people so your thoughts and their thoughts were in sync. And something like time travel. Again, you find that in, in fairy tales, fantasies, and in science fiction. And what is time travel about? Why is that important to us? And it's partly, it has to do with, well, there's a number of things, but one is simply the, the nostalgia, the, the longing to, yearning to get back to your past, to go back to the past a lot. And then, uh, pretty much, or something like flying, is uh, the idea of, you know, rising above the ordinary plane and being at a higher level. So, I found I could put in a lot of these science fictional ideas and use them to, uh, to symbolize things. So at this point, uh, I began thinking of transrealism as a kind of a nice way to write. It also, I like the idea of, uh, I saw it as in some way somewhat revolutionary in that if I write a novel and things happen that, that obviously aren't possible and aren't true, 
is sort of a way of going against consensus reality. And there's this tendency for us to be hypnotized by what we see in the news media, in the newspapers on TV, or, or what people tell you are important at any given time. And if you look back at a newspaper from 30 or 40 years ago, you can hardly even figure out what they're talking about. It's so particular to that particular time, you know, what's being taught to you as what's, what reality is. And one of my goals with transreal literature was to sort of open the reader to the idea that things could be very much different than they appear. So that was a, another thing that I was getting at with transrealism. Now, uh, probably the, the easiest way to write a transreal novel is to have yourself be the main character. And that's certainly what Kerouac always did, and Burroughs pretty much too. Though, uh, the thing is I've written 20 novels, and I don't want them all to be about myself. You know, that's too much. And you use up tracts of your life. In other words, you know, you've done college. You, you can't really write the college novel more than once, or maybe twice, but not more than twice. So. At this point, I very often will not actually have myself as a character in a transreal novel. But I will generally model the characters on people that I know. But even there, sometimes people will find out that I put them in a novel, and then, of course, they won't like the way they look. And then maybe they won't talk to me anymore. <laughs> but uh, So now it's more likely that a, a collage characters out of people. You know, I'll take pieces of different people and put them together. Now, another topic, kind of shifting gears, something that's maybe not as well understood as it ought to be, is that William Burroughs was, in many respects, a science fiction writer. I mean, he said The Naked Launch was science fiction. It has telepathy in it, it has aliens, it has uh, other dimensions, it has space pirates. And somehow we tend to say that's not science fiction because it's not shit written for morons, you know. <laughs> so, but it's, it is possible to have literary science fiction and even beat literary science fiction. Uh, one thing I sometimes think is of my career, there's this expression in philosophy, they'll say something is a category mistake. If you say, is virtue triangular? And they'll say, well, that's, that's a category mistake, because you're taking this, this virtue, you're taking this you know, quality of somebody's personality, virtue, and trying to put it in a, a geometric form. So literary science fiction is sort of a category mistake, but it is feasible. And Burroughs kind of did this. The thing about Naked Lunch, it's, it's basically autobiographical. But he's transrealized it so much with the mugwumps and the, the living typewriter and you know, all this cool stuff that it becomes science fiction. Kerouac also wanted to write science fiction, but he didn't really have the right bent of mind because he was sort of a, almost a pastoral writer. His nature writing is, I reread On the Road not so long ago, they have the the full scroll edition. And his writing about the landscape and the things he sees is just so beautiful. 
and also the romantic element of you know the, the, the person against the world, the quest. And you have to also say his novels tend not to really have a plot. And Naked Lunch, in a way, doesn't really have a plot, but that's sort of, it's more of a Cubist novel. It's sort of just shattered in different scenes. But uh, Kerouac wasn't really able to write any science fiction. But Ginsberg certainly used the science fiction tropes at times. There's an interesting book, probably some of you aren't familiar with it, called Yage Letters. And that was a, a book Burroughs went down to South America and he had this idea he could find this this vine, which people now called ayahuasca, I think is how they pronounce it, or yage or yahe, and uh, an early psychedelic. And uh, so he writes this, this book. There's some of, I, I think it's really one of the funniest books there is, Yage Letters. And there was a new edition a couple of years ago, Yage Letters Redux. And has a longer introduction by Oliver Harris and some extra material. And there's a, he has these great science fictional things. He says, Yage is space-time travel. And then he says, a place where the unknown past and the emergent future meet in a vibrating, soundless hum. And that phrase, he uses that phrase over and over, vibrating, soundless hum. There's a scene where he's in a, a forest. He says, the trees are tremendous, some of them 200 feet tall. Walking under these trees, I felt a special silence, a vibrating, soundless hum. And, and another, that, that's actually a really good description of how you would imagine telepathy would feel. This vibrating, soundless hum, this vibe. This, he, he talks about it a lot. And then Ginsburg goes down there seven years later, and he wants to make the scene. And, he takes the age, and then it's one of those drugs that when you take it, then you vomit for a really long time to start with, like, like peyote. And Ginsberg, he, he thinks he's dying, and he's, he's, he has this feeling that he's actually dying right now. And as he puts it, as if in rehearsal of last-minute death, my head rolling back and forth on the blanket, and finally settling in last position of stillness and hopeless resignation to God knows what fate. <laughs> To me, that for some reason seemed funny. Yeah. <laughs> but, and then he, he, here's a great science fiction thing he writes. He begins to sense a strange presence in the hut or a being I am blind to habitually. So something that's usually there, but usually you can't see it. Like a science fiction radio telepathy beast from another universe. <laughs> that's a great phrase, radio telepathy. I love that. But from, for, but an, from the other, it's from another universe, but from the series of universes in which I do temporarily exist. And then he gets into this big mystical revelation. God, the universe, everything, everyone is a one many mind accessible to all. There's nothing arcane or unusual about the revelation. It's just a daily fact and we tend not to notice it. God is here, God is now. And then, so he sends this letter to Burroughs, and uh, he's basically freaking out. He's really losing it. And Burroughs writes him a letter, and then at the bottom he says his advice. He says, now get some scissors and cut up my letter into little pieces and paste them together randomly and read them, and that'll probably help you. <laughs> Greg and I like that a lot. 
So uh, let me mention some parallels between transreal writing and beat writing. Uh, there's the one thing about the confessional, deeply autobiographical, revelatory aspect. And then, of course, in transreal science fiction, which also happens in Naked Lunch, you're making it so weird that it's not obvious if the revelations are actually about you or not. So it gives you a certain freedom. Then uh, the beats are usually focused on ecstatic and mystical modes of consciousness. And sort of, polit it's political in a certain sense, but it's not political in the sense of oh, agitating or doing demonstrations or, or taking actions. It's more a cultivating your own garden kind of political aspect, just step, turning away from the bogus uh, reality that's, that's being fed to us. And uh, in some ways, science fiction is like this too, that it often bears zero relationship to the actual world or anything that's happening. And it's usually the case that science fiction heroes aren't trying to get jobs. Uh, then uh, another stylistic thing in beat, particularly Kerouac was very good at doing this, is making up words, neologisms. And that's uh, like thinky. They'll say he was, there's a deep thinky moment. And yeah, that's a nice word, thinky, but it wasn't a word until Jack used it. And uh, that's something, one of my favorite things in science fiction writing is to make up nice words. Because you don't want clunky, kind of obfuscating words. Like, I like the word teep for telepathy, T-E-P. It's a short word. And like words that people actually use, they're like the pebbles you find by the beach. They're sort of rolled in the surf, they're rounded off, they're easy to pick up. And then I have this universal communication device I sometimes write about. It's sort of like a slug you put on the base of your neck. And I call that an uvy, a U-V-V-Y. And then I had these self-reproducing robots who live on the moon. And so a good name for them was Bopper, I thought. And when you're making up these words, I think about these things quite a bit. You know, I think, you know, what are all the associations that come off this word? You know, you've got the big Bopper, you know, but then uh, the, the Bopper, it's an action, they're doing it, they're bopping around. Dreek was a a psychedelic my characters were taking at one point. So dreek, you have the sort of negative, dreary, kind of dreek, but then there's also freak is in there. But they, they really want to get some dreek because then they can merge together, their bodies melt and they become one person. And uh, a word I was just using in the newest novel is skug. And it's, these people find a way of turning themselves into things resembling giant slugs. And uh, this is Alan Turing figures out how to do this, the, the founder of computation. And so skug is a word I like, because as soon as you put K in a word, that always sort of makes it harsh and bad. Like in science fiction movies, the, the bad, the enemies usually have a name that begins with K, like the Klaatu or the Klingon. You know. If there's a K, you know you have to look out for them. So, so and skug is kind of cooler than slug. So, uh, okay.
Now, and again, one difference, as I mentioned already, is usually a science fiction novel has a plot. It's because it is a commercial genre, and it's the reader sort of expects that. You know, it's sometimes hard to read, it, like uh, one of Kerouac's novels, to really read it straight through. That's normally not the way you're going to go at it. Uh, though you can read on the road straight through, but some of the others, it's more like you'll dip in. You know, it's like a book of poems almost. Just take a sample, then read a little more, take a sample. But the typical mode where you sort of expect people to read a science fiction novel is, you know, the blast through it <coughs> in a couple of days. You want this sort of plot, page-turning aspect. And that was something... I was sort of tuned in the on, on the idea of having plots for my books. Now, the, the sort of last module where I'm going to talk about is... Uh, this novel I've been working on, uh, I guess for about two years, maybe even three years, and it's called uh, Turing and Burroughs. So it's about Alan Turing and William Burroughs. And so I wanted it to be a beatnik science fiction novel, and it really, I guess I would have to say it isn't really trans-real in the sense that the characters in there are not people that I know. Although, I mean, Burroughs was a real person, so in that sense, and Turing was, so in a way it's transreal, or you might even call it an alternate history. And this happens to be the year, if you're a computer person, you might know this, this is the 100th year since Alan Turing's birth. He was born in 1912. And there's certain websites, if you go online, there's huge numbers of events that the computer people are excited about this. We're having lots, we're having lots of conferences. And uh, I thought it'd be nice to get a novel about Turing. And I've been meaning to do it. And then I, I'm, I'm going to actually manage to publish it next month. Um, one of the things that a lot of you will know about Alan Turing is that he supposedly committed suicide by eating a, an apple that was covered with cyanide. But uh, also, as is well known, is he was a homosexual in a way somewhat like the way Burroughs was a homosexual in that he was completely unrepentant about it. And he didn't mind telling it to people. It was never something he viewed as unnatural. I mean, Turing was a logician, you know, and he would reason, well, why shouldn't I tell people and ask them to have sex with me? And either they say yes or they say no. This, what's the problem? And then, of course, he did got in trouble in England. This was, after all, 1951, 52. And uh, the, the authorities hounded him to a certain extent. And so that was thought that might, have, you know, some people think that maybe that's why he killed himself. There's also the fact, something that was really only realized maybe in the last 20 years was that Turing had a, a huge effect in the Second World War. Uh, this was a secret for a long time, that he masterminded the cryptographic decryption of the German Enigma code, the code they used to transmit information to their submarines. The submarines, you know, would come up at night and blast some information to Germany and back. And the code was, you know, very difficult to break, but Turing 
he was also helping to build the first computers. And so he found a way, kind of developed a special purpose computer. And so they were paranoid about him telling these secrets to, to people. And in the 50s, there was this, this hysterical fear of communism, intellectuals, and homosexuals. There's just this really intense, kind of virulent feeling against them. And if, if somebody was knew secrets and they were homosexual, you know, then that was just a security risk. We've got to get rid of him. So it seems to me plausible that uh, the British Secret Service actually assassinated Turing. And uh, there's a few people who agree with me. Uh, so they would have kind of staged the th death. As a, they poisoned him with cyanide, then they put him you know, in his bed with the, the apple and just staged it that way. So that's how my novel starts out. Is uh, Turing is with, he'd been busted once for lascivious and lewd acts. And he'd signed something saying he would not have sex with another man in England. And then, so he reasoned that if he made, if he went to Greece and made friends with a man there, and the man flew to England, he could still have sex with him there because the man wasn't really English, so it would be okay. And so here's this guy visiting him, whose name is Zeno, and uh, and then they they pass in some cyanide tea, and they actually kill Turing's friend. And then Turing realizes what's going on, and he realizes he's got to flee, or they're going to take him down. And so this is where it starts getting exciting. Some of the last work Turing did in his life, he was the first person to do uh, computational morphogenesis, or <coughs> biotechnology. He did this famous calculation <coughs> on, uh, <coughs> on how uh, a cow develops its spots. So he worked at this grid of the cells, and there are these two substances in the cells, an activator and an inhibitor. And he worked out this system of reactions. And after you know months of paperwork and computer work, he came up with this picture, this sort of irregular blanche like you would find on a cow. <laughs> it was just wonderful. And so then uh, the feeling, at least my feeling, is then, thank you, he was able to uh, kick this up a level and find a way to take a scrap of the skin from his nose and put it on a, a baking pan in an oven with some special chemicals and put it at you know just a low temperature, 120 degrees, and leave it in for a couple of hours. And then there would be a copy of his face, you know, a living copy of his face. <laughs> this is science fiction. So. And then, so he does that with the tip of his nose and the tip of Zeno's nose. So he grows copies of their faces. So he puts his face on the dead Zeno, puts Zeno in his bed with the apple then puts Zeno's face on himself and skips town. And so where else would he go except to the uh, inner zone? He goes to Tangier, where William Burroughs is living, and makes friends with him. So uh, I thought maybe I'll just read you a little bit out of the book now, and then uh, maybe five or ten minutes, and then we'll do some questions or discussion. And I think I actually didn't bring a printed copy, but I've got it here on my computer. So, okay. When Alan Turing, th this chapter is called The Skug. 
When Alan Turing reached Tangier in June 1954, the city's whitewashed lanes and towers seemed a maze of joy. He was elated with his escape from the shadowy agents who tried to assassinate him, and glad to leave the tedious, pawky computing machines of Manchester. He rented a comfortably furnished apartment and hid his money beneath a floorboard. For now, Alan was free to do as he pleased, perhaps to idle, perhaps to push further with his startling new work on the chemical keys to biological morphogenesis. If he could fully fathom how nature grows her knobby, gnarly forms, then he might well complete his lifelong quest to build a mind, to create a purely logical sentience by whom he could, at last, be understood. He found that he loved Tangier on a visceral level. Every morning, Alan would take a long turn, long run on the empty beaches. The locals had little interest in the seaside. The quality of the light was uplifting. The muzzane calls to prayer were like intricately, intricately encrypted signals from a higher mind, and the cheeky street boys of Tangier were a visual delight. For Alan, the Cosba was like a holiday fair, fair with sweets at every turn, although as yet he hadn't quite dared to sample the boys. He was still in some fear of hidden enemies. Seeking out fellow expatriates, he encountered the Louche International Café Society of Tangier. At home, he'd rarely hit it off with mannered esthetes, but in this odd backwater, everyone was hungry for companionship. In the first month, Alan often spent the evenings at the Café Central in the Saco Chico Square, enjoying the freewheeling euphoria, the cognac, the mint tea, and the keef. A dissipated Oxford poet named Brian Howard would hold forth on beauty, and then William Burroughs, a sexy, sardonic American of Alan's age, would send the group into gales of laughter with his scandalous routines. Alan noticed that amid the expatriates' merry intimacy, there was no stigma in being homosexual. One night the camaraderie loosened Alan's tongue to the point where he bragged to his raffish companions that he wasn't really the man whose name stood in his Greek passport. <clears throat> I'm not Xenomedicides, Alan announced to the ring of smirking expats, his voice hoarsened by Keith. I only wear his face. In reality, I'm a top-drawer mathematician who cracked the Huns' cryptographic codes. I won the war, don't you know? And now the Queen's Mandarins want to rub me out. The next morning, Alan awoke with a start of horror. He must be suicidal to be spilling his secrets to foppish wastrels who'd cut him cold, or they all back in London. He avoided the cafes from then on, going for his long runs along the sea in the mornings, visiting the market, and resuming his researches on computational morphogenesis. And maybe just for kicks, let me cut uh, to a chapter right after that where we get Burroughs' point of view on their meeting. And actually, uh, I need my reading glasses. It would be good, my computer glasses. They're in that, that second drawer down, the big drawer. And right in the front, there ought to be a black pants glasses case. Black drawer? No, no, the, not that. Sylvia, maybe you can find them. My wife knows what they look like. Oh, okay. yeah. Let's see. <laughs> 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 
see. Well, I'll Here see. they are. Yeah. Uh, okay. You actually need, a, well, I'm not a lot of different kinds of glasses. <laughs> Thank okay. You. Thanks. So, <coughs> these, these letters and the ones reprinted in a later chapter are said to have been written by the author William Burroughs. The letters in this chapter are variously addressed to Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, and to Burroughs' father, Mortimer. The letters date from December 22, 1954 to December 25, 1954. To Allen Ginsberg, Tangiers, December 22, 1954. Dear Allen, I've been pounding my keys for a silo full of queer corn story this month to the point where my typewriter sees up and croak. So I come at you direct through my quivering quill. Imagine a hack writer fixes with ink and he enters his personal Xanadu pleasure dream, but then the great publisher edited him out of Eden. I've settled back into Tangier. They got everything I want. Each trip to the homeland drags me more. How did we ever let our cops get so out of hand? If I ever started feeling sorry for my parents, I'd never stop. I'm a disappointment, but having gone thus far, I'd be a fool not to go further. My word hoard is compost to make lovely lilies bloom. Too bad you and me didn't contact personal, but I couldn't make it to California with all them conditions you were laying down. Why are you scared of mind melt? Our buddy-buddy microscopic symbiotes do it all the time. Dysenteric amoeba Bill meets sexy in his bristles paramecium Al. They rub pellicles. Ah, the exquisite prickling, my dear. And schlup. My protoplasm is yours, old thing. The two of us conjugated into a snot wad so cozy. I see me in a Mother Billy Hubbard ectoplasmic gown, tanting atom massacres to drape over that harumph goal guy apparatus of yours. Just a routine, says Clem, standing bare-ass on the milking stool, while the gray mare kicks screaming through the barn wall. Sorry, old girl, I meant to use lard, not liniment. The, the local worthies presented me with the key to the city, a nicely broken-in keef pipe stamped with arabesques. Eulalating crowds of Spanish and Arab boys bore my pierced sedan chair through the streets, I am installed in a Casba Seraglio, $23 per month, a clean plaster suite, at Pete the Procurer's with an extra bedroom and a balcony affording microscopic views of the souk. Brilliant clear Mediterranean skies. I'm a Mercophilus arthropod in the African anthill, a parasite symbiote whom the insect trust tolerates on account of my tasty secretions. You could all back in stock at the pharmacia, but dollies, M-tubes, and codonita still in short su supply. Brian Howard is like to have burned down the place this summer. I just don't feel right in the morning without I have my medication. Brian's gone home to the Riviera buying a castle, my dear. You gotta dig the Soco Chico when you and Jack come. The little market, the anything goes interzone of the interzone. Maybe I write a magazine piece about it for the Reader's Digest. You be my agent and we retain intergalactic telepathy rights. By way of Soco Chico color, I run into a Cambridge type at the Cafe Central last night. He say he used to be a math professor. 
I know this character from the summer when he briefly orbited Brian Howard, but yesterday I hardly recognized him, his face all dead and gray. Talks like a full-on Brit boffin, with stutters and pauses like Morse code, and he shrieks key words for emphasis. Ah, 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 Burrows! <laughs> Pathetically glad to talk to me, and I'm all ears, lonely Ruth amid the alien corn. He laughs inordinately at all my jokes. After I stand him to a cognac and keef, he rushed me outside to talk. This summer he called himself Xenomedicides, but now he's shedding his character armor and says he's Alan Turing. As we walk, he's darting glances down the side streets in fear of, he says, a large man-eating slug that he's unleashed. <laughs> and I'm digging the kicks, carrying a pipe and a bottle. Turing says he's learning to program the processes of biological growth. His face, just as a for instance, is a fake, a meat disc that he cultured in a pan six months ago and it's grown onto him like lichen on a boulder. But it's rotting. While he's talking to me, he picks shreds of flesh <laughs> off his cheeks. Oh. Picking up on my visceral repulsion, the mad prof reassures me that his face rot is akin to cancer and is therefore not a communicable disease. Says he's concocted a cure with the help of an angelic youth named Driss. The cure itself have, however, gone metastatic on him and is the aforementioned <laughs> slug that roams the Tangier alleys in search of boys. But Turing's confident and manful. He says that he's still quite fit. He goes running on the beach three miles every morning, trailing his flag of stink. It's a wonder the fellas don't tear him apart barehanded and roast him like a goat. Turing has a third problem beside his rotting face and the escaped slug. Viz, he is unable to return to his rooms because of some unspecified dust-up with sinister unknown agents who have penetrated the zone. They are persecute him because he know too much. And then the evening breaks into blotches and streaks with a soundtrack of hysterical laughter. A leaf Turing passed out in an alley. And now, oh the horror, Alan, the horror, I hear this character's voice in the street. Real-time message from the borough's memory unit, I offered to let the decaying math prof bunk in the spare room of this whorehouse suite where I hang my writer shingle. He's coming up the stairs, his gray pie face aimed unerringly my way like a lamprey's toothed sucker disc. Love, Bill. <laughs> so that's the setup. So I think we'll stop there. And uh, let's do some questions. I have sometimes tried cut up. Uh, <coughs> it, I haven't done it much. There was once I was working on a novel, and I wanted a guy to have uh, sort of, oh, sort of altered state telepathic visions where he'd see the future. So I would write down a brief outline of some scene that I expected to have later in the book, and then maybe a scene that had happened earlier in the book, and cut those up, and then. Uh, I was using paper then, and then I'd put it on an artboard and move them around. I remember my hero, the writer Robert Sheckley, happened to come visit me then. And he saw that and he was really happy. <laughs> he said, I'm always looking for ways to get new texture for my prose.
the thing with cut up, I mean, when Burroughs started doing it more and more, it's 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 not always that interesting. It's more like a book like, oh, I don't know, like the Western Lands. When you when you get to the pages where he's doing cut up, you tend to just sort of zap through it. It's it's sort of. It's an interesting idea, but it doesn't make it the most readable. But it's certainly worth doing. And, and, and you always want to find new ways to make aliens sound. So it would be a, a good tool to use for that, too. Why don't you need real paper to do a cut-up? Can you uh, do it on a computer? You, you can. I actually once wrote a, a program to cut up stories. But this is, when I first learned computer programming back in 86, I was more excited about fucking up my fiction with the computer. And there's once a story I wrote with my friend Mark Laidlaw, and it's a science fiction story. And then near the end, the characters, they kind of flip over, they, they get onto some multi-dimensional giant squid, and they're turning over. And so then I, I used this program to make the last page or two of our story be written backward. You know, each word was just turned around. And I, we had a little trouble. And then I, I, I think we managed to get somebody to publish it like that. And I really wanted them to print it upside down as well. <laughs> but uh, it, it does seem like cut off, it, cut up. It seems, I think I would always do it on paper. The physical. Yeah, the physical aspect and playing with it. I mean, you can just s drag, but then you tend to get into, it's not as random as it would be if you're cutting and pasting. Yeah? Um, so that cutting and pasting, uh, are you familiar with Marco, the sounding words that you just mm -hmm, mm -hmm. never heard of? Yeah, I'll look into that, yeah. There was another, there's an early teletype-inspired novel, I think it's by Willard Bain, called Informed Sources. And it was, uh, it was like it was like a series of screwed up teletype news teletype releases. Oh yeah, absolutely. I should have mentioned him. I forgot to. Uh, when I started doing this, was I'd read some Philip K. Dick in college, but it hadn't. There's one book called Time Out of Joint that Greg and I read and we liked, and. Uh, I really got into Philip K. Dick when I read Scanner Darkly. I, I was, we were talking about it at dinner. I, to me, that's kind of his masterpiece. Uh, and a totally transreal book. Because, I mean, when he wrote it, he was, he was like living in an apartment with Oakland, you know, taking a lot of amphetamine. And he had a whole lot, big supply, and people were hanging around with him to get it. And then Scanner Darkly is about these heads living in a house, and they're taking something called substance D. D stands for death, but they like taking it. And, uh, and then Philip K. Dick also, he had this idea. He always said, to write a, a, an interesting novel, you can't have one idea for a novel, you have to have two ideas for a novel. And the, otherwise, because one idea isn't enough. And so then the other idea in Scanner Darkly is that they have the scanning device that is watching them, for the, the police, and uh, and then the guy running in the scanner is actually one of the heads, 
and it's all kind of turned around and it's sort of describing where Field's head was at but it's also very funny novel very sad novel very funny novel and uh, actually the my name transrealism was uh, when I first read a copy of Scanner Darkly I was I'd gone to a science fiction convention in England, Brighton. I'd finished my science fiction novel, White Light, that I mentioned earlier. Sylvia and I were living in, in Germany at that time. I actually had a grant to do research on the mathematics of transfinite numbers, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And then I said, well, here, they're paying me to be here. I might as well do something useful. So I wrote a science fiction novel about <laughs> transfinite numbers. And then I took that manuscript to this... I had no idea how to sell a book, so I just went to the science fiction convention in Brighton and hoped to run into a publisher, and then I did run into this guy. He was wor working for Virgin Books. At the time, Virgin Records was doing a lot of the punk, punk music. Uh, I think they were doing, they did Pill, I don't think they did the Sex Pistols. And they wanted to start a line of books, and then he just, he got off on this book, so that was the, I sold that book. But uh, while I was there, I got hold of Scanner Darkly, and it was in a British edition, and had uh, one of the blurbs said, he has written a transcendental autobiography. And I thought, okay, trans, that's it, trans. And surrealism's been used. So then I thought transrealism would be a nice word. So I always liked the, the voice, the California voice that Kill ha Phil has in his books. His characters have this... It's a kind of flat California way of talking. And also, uh, he also often writes something I, I think of, it's a phrase that somebody else used in a different context, but it's the phrase is writing degree zero. Or it's just saying it as cleanly and simply as possible, what's going on. And I like that. I, I think one trick that interests me in writing, I, I work at various levels, and one is the kind of low level. To make it so smooth to think about the rhythm of the words, so it's very, very easy to read it. So it feels very simple. And, uh, so I mean, sometimes people might think maybe, you know, it's not as literary or as intelligent because it's so simple to read, but it's, it takes some work to make it simple. But that was something I learned from Tokyo. But uh, certainly he was a, you might say he was the first translator. There's actually some, a professor called Damien Broderick, he's also a science fiction writer, wrote a book for, maybe for Greenwood Press, about transrealism, uh, using my word, but then, you know, a lot of it about Philip K. Dick. So yeah, he's definitely the beatniks and Phil Dick and Robert Sheckley and Jorge Luis Borges, those would be big influences on me. And Thomas Pynchon, of course. Yeah. Um, you've, a lot of the stuff you talk about in your books, it seems like it's very much borderline between today what we consider fantasy and science fiction. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think that the, the, the definition between those is like even important anymore? Or do you feel like... Well, it's a complicated thing. Uh, Sometimes science fiction writers get resentful because they feel like the fantasy books are, are getting more market share. 
And there's also, if you roll back, you know, 50 years ago, fantasy was a more inclusive notion. And it's sort of, kind of, I mean, Tolkien, you know, he wrote these wonderful books, and then the sort of, the concept of what a fantasy is sort of collapsed down to where I think easily 90% of books called fantasy are in some way very similar to Tolkien books. And the very idea of fantasy where anything is possible would sort of make you think of a more, more wide range. Um, I tend to put a science fiction explanation on the things in my books. So I, I just, that amuses me or that's a puzzle. I mean, I think of, you think of the effect that you want first, you know, you want somebody to turn inside out or you want two people to melt together, you know, or, or you want somebody to turn into a beam of light. And then if you know enough about science, you can make up some kind of seemingly vaguely logical scientific explanation. Now, you could equally well make up a, a fantasy explanation. Would you say in a way that it's almost like a more literary take on the fantastical is using science fiction as opposed to fantasy? Well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily more literary. It's just uh, it's sort of a different way of framing it, I guess. Yeah. Because I did actually, my last novel published was called Jim and the Flims. And it was, I sort of wanted it to be more like a fantasy. You know, I was in hopes of tapping into the fat fantasy market. But then it's just my nature. I couldn't resist making up science fictional quantum mechanical explanations for everything. I mean, even though there's these people flying around and they live in a giant geranium plant. <laughs> Should have been a young adult. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you find these magical concepts? Do you write them all down? Well, I do usually. I almost always carry a piece of paper like this in my back pocket. It's always it has to be folded in four, and then. I could write on it when I have an idea. And then, but I don't know, it's, I don't know exactly how I get ideas. I just, I, you know, I look at things in my own way. I, I, one of the things is what if, you know? I mean, well, something I've been thinking about this week, we were in Maine before this on Vinyl Haven. And here across the street, I've seen a lot of lobster traps piled up. And they're very interesting the way they're made. There's these, this net cone that the lobster goes through. And then there's this sort of dangling plastic fingers over the cone that makes it harder for him to get, or her to get out. And then there's the, do they call it the parlor where the food is? And the lobster's in there and eats as much as it wants. And then there's a little slit in the mesh, I don't know if you ever looked at a lobster trap closely, where a smaller lobster can squeeze out there. Yeah, yeah. So a lobster will be going into traps and eating for m maybe a year or two before it finally gets big enough. So the time it goes in, it has one more really good free meal, and then it can't get out. So naturally then, you know, I start thinking, well, what if they did this to people, you know? <laughs> So the aliens are setting up these, these things are 
sort of like restaurants or I'm not exactly sure what would be the attractive. I mean, food or sex or drugs or really good video games. But you'd go in there and the door would be such that you couldn't get back out the door. You'd like drop off a platform onto a trampoline and you know, wee, this is fun. And then, well, wait, I can never get back out there. Oh, well, you go and you eat and you have sex and you take drugs and you play video games. And then there's this little hole in the wall where you can worm out. And then, boy, that was fun. I'm going to come back here. So you go there every Friday night. <laughs> and then the day comes when you can't get out. And then, you know, once a week, the tractor beam pulls this thing up to the saucer that's hovering over the city. And they take out the, the big ones that they caught. And do they just eat them? Well, that would be too crude. So probably they, they do something weirder. They somehow extract the soul. They get the, they get the very wink out of a person. Like, like, somehow get your squeal and do something with it. The guys catching you might be the, not be the ones that are eating you. They're selling you to people that want you. <laughs> so I, I might, I was thinking, I'm trying to start a novel now. And even though this idea has nothing at all to do with the novel, maybe I can put it in there. Because <laughs> you need two ideas for a novel.